Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I mean, my friend Kitty, like we used to dress up in her mom's, like as teenagers, like not as little kids, we used to dress up in her mom's like skirt suits and like (laughs) culottes and stuff and like take pictures and like invite boys over to see us in our weird outfits, which they were like, you guys are weird. (laughs) You know, like we just, that's, that's, I love that world. I love like a pearlized buttons. Let's, (laughs) Let's go all in. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and this week we'll be joined by Saturday Night Live alum Vanessa Bayer, who can currently be seen in Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. But first, with the Golden Globes just around the corner, just a few days away, finally, I am joined by senior writer Katie Reif, who uh, joined me two episodes ago to discuss the Screen Actors Guild nominations and the Golden Globe nominations. But today we are devoted to all Golden Globes. Thanks so much for joining, Katie. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to the show on Sunday, yeah. uh, as I know you are as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, it always means a little bit of extra work for us, but it's worthwhile. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> should be interesting, you know. Um, today, we're going to be diving into three of the biggest film categories and Absolutely. discussing all the nominees there. But before we get there, Katie, uh, I know you you joined us, as I mentioned, a few episodes ago. But uh, before we dive into those three categories, did you have anything kind of a general overview thoughts about this year's nominations? Well, you know, something we talked about last time is we both are kind of curious to see what the actual ceremony is going to look like this year, you know, being virtual and all. And before these nominations came out for the Globes, I kind of wondered, you know, what is it? What is this going to look like? Is it going to be like a typical year? Or is it going to look really different because of the whole pandemic year phenomenon in cinema? And I think in some ways, it is the same. You know, the Globes always make some wild choices. And this year's no exception. It's an interesting mix of like wild choices and expected choices. And in some ways, it is different. You know, they're making different choices, but not in the way I expected, if that makes sense. Totally. I mean, yes, as you as you mentioned, uh, they, the Golden Globes are known for some wild cards and some some yeah. uh, some crazy moments. But we've gotten some really great surprises this this year, I think, yeah. in addition to some snubs that we're very sad about. But some of the people mm. that were included were very were very excited about. Yeah, something that is different for the Globes, which is actually a first for the Globes, is that out of the five nominees for Best Director, this year, three of them are women. So that's the first time that's ever happened, which is which pretty is cool. Gr- yeah, which is pretty cool. I remember having you on for the Gotham Awards, and we discussed mm-hmm. how all five of those uh, people nominated were women, yeah. which has been fantastic. So, that was uh, you know. really different. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's been a strong year for women filmmakers. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've had plenty of other years that have been strong years for women filmmakers, though yeah. we have not seen something like this. So this is fantastic, which actually brings us to the first of the three categories that we're going to spend more time talking about. Uh, so why don't we just dive right in there with Best Director Motion Picture. Right. Uh, the nominees in that category this year are Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, David Fincher for Mank, Regina King for One Night in Miami, Aaron Sorkin for The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a really strong category, uh, in addition to being really, really great to see so much female representation there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie, what were your initial thoughts when you saw this list come out? So when I saw this list come out, I kind of expected Chloe Zhao to be on this list, uh, simply because Nomadland won top prizes at Venice and TIFF, and has been picking up a lot of these, you know, um, sort of guild awards and slightly lower profile awards as well. So, you know, that one was pretty much, it's it's riding a wave all the way to the Oscars, I think, Nomadland. And it's a wonderfully directed film. It was my number one film of last year. And also, I think, um, you know, in terms of 
the the things that didn't change too much. I think having David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin on here is pretty expected. You know, they they both have been <laughs> gotten a lot of laurels over the years. But the ones that are kind of then we have two first time directors on the nominations list this year, which is really interesting, which is Regina King, who most people know her as an actress, but One Night in Miami was her feature film directing debut. And I thought she did a wonderful job with the directing in this film, something that uh, Shannon Miller, our news editor, talked about in her review of One Night in Miami, was that this film is based on a stage play, right? And a lot of it takes place in these kind of small enclosed spaces in a, in a hotel room. But King really showed real thoughtfulness and aptitude for keeping the film visually interesting, even as it takes place in these enclosed spaces, because films based on plays, you can often kind of clock that it's based on a play just because the camera is very static and it doesn't move around a lot. But she has a lot of cool stuff where just as sometimes it's as simple as taking them up on the roof of the motel instead of the motel room, you know. <laughs> and another thing she does that is a little more subtle is she does a lot of uh, pulling focus, meaning that you know, the scene will start off focused on something in the foreground, and then it'll zoom. I'm not sure what the exact technical term is, but she'll pull focus from something in the front of the room to something in the back of the room, which really gives you a great sense of depth, which makes it seem a lot less claustrophobic than it could. And so I thought she showed a lot of really thoughtful technique right out of the gate with that film. That makes me think of another film that took, uh, that adapted a stage production. We had Ryan Murphy's Boys in the Band, Mm -hmm. Uh, It was produced by Ryan Murphy last year. uh, And I felt when comparing that to the original film, uh, which was also an adaptation of the stage Mm -hmm. production, um, Mm -hmm. you know, from from 1970, I believe, was when the film came out. That film did a similar thing in terms of keeping everything in one shot and the way that it kind of is reminiscent of a stage production, pulling focus and and that kind of and playing with the dimensions and depth uh, in a Mm -hmm. way that that the that the 2020 film version uh, did not. So that's a really strong, strong choice. And I'm, I'm glad that she made that. I'm glad that she's represented here. I know how excited she was um, yeah. to film One Night in Miami. I have to say, you know, obviously you mentioned, like, we see the the standard Fincher and Sorkin nominations here. Uh, they, they don't surprise me because, yes, they are they are known names and the mm-hmm. Globes like, like a known name there. But I have to say, like, neither of these films wowed me in any way um yeah i wasn't super impressed with these either (laughs) (laughs) um yeah like fincher is really well known for his exacting technique and um mank does have some of that but i kind of i just didn't think that it's perspective on old hollywood which was all that fresh i really i thought that you know it was a lot of well, you know, you have this one good guy in this sort of snake pit that is Hollywood. And that, and I feel like that's a take that I had seen before on Hollywood, you know? I also just had a hard time understanding anything anyone said in that movie. So, like, <laughs> it, on, on just a pure enjoyability level, um, that was difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Chicago 7, you know, I think it was a, it was a, a tough subject matter to tackle, um, it's mm-hmm. timely, but only, but almost in the same way that a lot of One Night in Miami is timely. Yeah. There, there's, it's, it's almost easier to tell a quiet story when you're talking about something that is so just like really hitting a nerve. Yeah. Like uh, with historically, that's going on historically relevant, you know, exactly, relevant to exactly. its time and also to our time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in, in true Sorkin fashion, and I have to say, like, I am not a Sorkin hater in any way. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually really appreciate his scripts and such, but I, I think Trial of the Trial of Seven could have, could have used some editing in many different ways. Yeah. Uh, it, it could have been edited down in length. It could have been edited. The film itself could have been edited a little bit differently. And I think Sorkin kind of was wanting to throw in the kitchen sink when that wasn't <laughs> maybe necessarily the best way to tell the story. Absolutely. And then when you look at it next to Mangrove, the first film in the the Small Axe series, that is also, you know, a trial, uh, a politically charged trial that takes place around the same time. And I just thought that Mangrove had a more interesting kind of filmmaking wise and content wise kind of take on that particular, um, you know, milieu of story personally. Yeah. Um, and then our last nominee is Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman. Uh, this, I think, is a well-deserved nomination. Um, I'm, like, I'm not fully over the moon about this movie. Like, I liked it and I got it, but it, uh, I don't know. Like, it, it's very satisfied with its own cleverness. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm World Fennel. You are very clever. <laughs> um, but this film, I thought the direction was fabulous. And the screenplay is very good, too. And the screenplay is uh, nominated. But I just thought what she was doing with having this, like, hyper feminine, very bright pop art kind of palette with this very dark story was a really cool choice. And the way she uses tone in the movie is really good too. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, Nomadland is very deserving of being mm-hmm. the front runner as it is in, in many categories and run heading into the Oscars. But in terms of like films that I thought were great that I also enjoyed um, Promising Young Woman, I think, hits mm-hmm. hits both at a level that elevates it for me um, to one of my favorites uh, over yeah. Nomadland. Yeah. Um, so I, I really, I, I am so glad to see both of those films here, but Promising Young Woman just personally, to me, like, hits on hits on more levels. Uh, mm-hmm. But you mentioned you mentioned best screenplay, and I think it's important to note that uh, Emerald Fennell is nominated for Promising Young Woman. And so is Aaron Sorkin and Chloe Zhao mm-hmm. for Trial of Chicago 7 and Nomadland. Yeah. Um, and then we have Jack Fincher nominated for Mank. Um, yeah, there's a so lot of overlap. There's yeah. a lot of overlap. The only difference is we have the father represented in Best Screenplay, uh, but right. not here in Best Director. So these also directors were working with... Yes, they were working with great material um, to mm-hmm. begin with, uh, mm-hmm. obviously. But speaking of great material, let's move on to a category that doesn't have any overlap here, which is best motion picture, musical, or comedy. Yeah. We did not see any of these. We did not see any of these scripts represented in uh, screenplay or director. Right. Um, but here they are. The nominees this year are Borat, subsequent movie film, Hamilton, music, The Prom, and Palm Springs. Uh, what are your initial thoughts here, Katie? Uh, you know, when we were talking about Golden Globes wild cards, this is the wild card category. <laughs> this, this category is mostly wild cards, if you ask me. Like, uh, I think Sia's music was a big surprise to a lot of people. Prom also, like, prom, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, this isn't necessarily my thing, but like, have fun, y'all. You know, that's kind of how I feel about prom. I will say, I will say with prom, it is my thing, and I yeah. still don't still know that it deserves like to it. be here. <laughs> okay, well, it's fair. not that I didn't. It's not that I didn't like it. the 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 short version of my take on the prom is: I got to see it on stage, and I think mm-hmm. that it makes a big difference if you've seen this production on stage that you can appreciate a lot of the things that they did in the film. Okay. Were were you know James Corden? We can. We can argue whether or not he should have taken the role in the first place, but mm-hmm. he did that character as it was written. Like that is like right. he was not making a he did not make a choice to make him a flamboyant, uh, effeminate gay man. Right. That was that's in the script. There's lines about it. So I don't I don't hold that aspect of it against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like I said, we could have a debate about whether or not he should have accepted the role. Um, right. And my answer on that changes day to day. But right. uh, I thought he did the did what the film asked for, did what the script asked for. And I think the the movie itself did what the script asked for. I just don't know, as with some other musicals that have been adapted into stage production or stage productions that have been adapted into films, if the concept in general of the film maybe didn't translate as perfectly as as some other musicals right. have in the past. Yeah, and ha- I mean, Hamilton being nominated for Best Picture, like, you know, since it is musical comedy, I, I'm not, I'm not as surprised to see Hamilton get nominated for musical or comedy, because, you know, I mean, like, in a lot, like, that was like a filmed stage production more than a movie, I would say, but like, as a musical, I mean, you know, it's so popular for a reason, I think. Yeah, well, the thing that the reason for me that it's a wild card and weird to be here is Mm. that really, I think you could argue that that was a special. Oh, um, yeah, okay. Because because while they did while they did take some choices to be more cinematic, they filmed it over multiple days of performances, Mm -hmm. um, both with audience and without audience, which allowed them to do some great close ups and some some great like panning shots and using, uh, you know, getting great, like, wide shots and such that they wouldn't have been able to get if they had an audience in there. So so there was gotcha. elements of a, of like a cinema, film production. Right? Yeah. yeah, there were elements of cinema in it, but essentially it was like recording a comedy special mm-hmm. or, or, or something else similar to that. Um, you know, I think of the West Wing uh, reunion special that we had there. I think 
you wouldn't necessarily consider that a TV movie or a mm-hmm. episode of TV. Like that was a filmed staged production. Um, right. Exactly. So that's where it gets, that's where it gets weird for me here. It's, it's that while I respect the work that went into making that version of Hamilton, I also just don't know that you can necessarily compare that to what went into making the prom or any of the other films here. You know, it's a completely different beast. Um, right. So, totally. So, so I, I, that's where I just feel, I, I don't think it's undeserving of accolades. I just don't know that it should be in a category that's that's celebrating film in a way that is more traditional, I guess. Right, exactly. Like, maybe it would be more suited for the Emmys than the Golden Globes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. so it's very interesting. But again, we get into the small acts, which were basically films <laughs> that are being considered TV. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, everything everything's just entertainment these days. But yeah, I mean, like when you when you try to compare that to Palm Springs, I mean, I guess you also kind of get into it with Borat in terms of like, was that a film in a traditional sense too? And I'd say mm. yes, obviously, but yeah. and it's particularly more so than Hamilton. But you know, I, I, maybe I'm arguing semantics that aren't as important to other people. Definitely more so than Hamilton. I think Borat, because like Hamilton wasn't originally conceived as a film. You know what I mean? But Borat right. was supposed to be a film from the beginning. It's not like they shot a TV pilot and then decided to expand it. It's not like that. Even though some great films have been made that way. Like that's what Mulholland Drive is. Yeah. But uh but Borat I think is was is you know was going to be nominated. Like it's very relevant. It's very funny. You know, I believe we talked before about Maria Bakalova who's been getting picking up some awards nominations for her part in this film. She was very funny. And like in terms of and as far as relevance goes, you kind of can't beat Borat with that whole Rudy Giuliani scene which just made me scream and squeal in my seat so much. <laughs> yes, and and actually, when it comes to the acting, I, I'm mm-hmm. all for, I'm all for it. Like Lin Manuel Miranda is nominated for Hamilton, which I mm-hmm. think is is uh, is great because it is a filmed performance. Like on the when you break it down to the elements of the right. film, uh, I think there I have for some reason have no issue with with their nominations. It's more so in this category that for some reason it irks me. But yes, you have okay. um, Lynn Manuel Miranda nominated. You have Sasha Baron Cohen and Maria Bakalova nominated. Uh, and you also have James Corden nominated from The Prom, as we mm-hmm. just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is there is continued overlap here. We have Andy Samberg from Palm Springs nominated in the acting categories, as well as Kate Hudson for music, which is, uh, is, is interesting for all its own reasons. And I think yeah. kind of... Uh, music, if those of you that are unfamiliar, that is uh, Sia's project that received a lot of backlash because of its portrayal of people on the autism spectrum right. uh, and the choice to not employ actors that are themselves on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this is also where we get into a little bit of, uh, this is just me guessing here, this is where we get into a little bit of the fact that these are international journalists and maybe don't have the same Concerns are a part of the same dialogues that a lot of uh, American outlets maybe are yeah, part of. Yeah, I think it's the latter one. You know, it's more that they're not, I, I mean, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not, you know, extremely insensitive people. You know, it's more <laughs> that they're just not involved in these dialogues, right? Like, Right, and yeah, yeah. Because, because, you know, it even could be that they, because I could see someone interpreting this as in they did know that and were like, well, we're going to nominate it anyway. And I and I do think that as, as you uh, concurred, it's probably more so that they just weren't even really conscious of of the backlash and, and right. what was going on in those and dialogues. And also, you know, something we talked about last time with the Globes is that they're really big on star power and Sia's a big pop, a pop star overseas, too. So that might have helped. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and Kate Hudson, international star as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's definitely reasons to uh to see why they would why, why they would it's not there them. even if i mean i'm going to be honest with you patrick i haven't seen music i wasn't particularly planning on it I'm not, no, I, mean, I feel like i'm admitting honest, something no i mean fair fair and uh, i have to admit that i have not either mainly because i thought because of the backlash there wouldn't necessarily be reason to professionally and i exactly. didn't really have interest to personally um but now i probably should check it out just so i feel like i've right. i've of knowledgeable, um, although like I, I don't, I don't see it getting major nominations beyond that. But of course, yeah, I'll eat my I've, words. 
I think this is a Golden Globes wild card big time. Um, in terms yeah. of, you know, like we were talking about performance and uh, a lot of this, but uh, Palm Springs is a film with a great script. I thought that the script in Palm Springs is really funny. It's There's been so many of those kind of time loop comedies that it's difficult to do one that feels fresh. And Palm Springs felt really fresh. So I think Palm Springs is definitely a worthy uh, contender in this category. Yeah, and it's one of those that I'm I'm glad it got nominated, and I actually hope it wins here, I think, mm-hmm. for me. Um, but I, I do wonder, again, if its tone and content and stars speak to the Globe's voters. Obviously, it spoke to them enough to get nominated, right. but I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it, because to me, I think if it was, if this was the the Emmys or something that I'm just thinking of another award show that separates sure. into comedy. So if if the Emmys were giving were giving a, a comedy film award, I could see it doing really well with that voting base. I just wonder if the Globe voters will will elevate this to actually be uh, the winner. Yeah, like I haven't gambled on awards shows in many years. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do this. Um, so a friend of mine would have this Oscars pool and you would put in like a dollar. You know, it wasn't serious gambling. Mm-hmm. But after I started doing this professionally, she was like, you're not allowed to do it anymore. You know too much. Like you're a ringer. <laughs> so I'm not allowed <laughs> to participate anymore. But if I was voting or, you know, putting my dollar down, I'd put my dollar down on Borat to win this category this year. Yeah, I th- I, that's where I'm landing as well. And, you know, before we move on to Best Most in Picture Drama, I want to acknowledge that there's some great films represented in the acting categories here that I, mm-hmm. that I you know, maybe would have loved to have seen here. French Exit has Michelle Pfeiffer nominated, who's just fantastic, I think, at, at the very least. Uh, Rosamund Pike uh, for yeah. I Care A Lot, which if you listened to uh episode a couple weeks ago, we had her on as, as a guest. We have Anna Taylor-Joy for Emma, which kind of came and went. I, I'm surprised to see that here just because I kind of forgot it came out even. Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it, that movie was notable mostly for its set design, in my opinion. Yes, gorgeous, gorgeous, and and not that not that Anna Taylor Joy wasn't good in the role. Just yeah, like, it's that like, was so long ago. But oh, then that again, one. <laughs> but then again, to be honest, the other thing though that we haven't really discussed about the Globes is just how much the narrative has been that like there's been no films out this year and. While we may like some films more than the others that were nominated, like it, it clearly shows that there was there was great content here and enough oh, great totally. content that enough great content that we have a long list of films that we wish were represented here that aren't. Um, but on the on the best actor side, I just want to quickly acknowledge that we also have Dev Patel uh, mm-hmm. nominated for the personal history of David Copperfield yeah. in addition to another and all the all the guys perfect- that overlap with the comedy films. Another perfectly serviceable adaptation, much like Emma. It looked yes. nice, it was serviceable, but it wasn't breaking any new grounds in terms of, you know, filmed literary adaptations. So Agreed. I very much agreed. Uh and, and love Dev as a as a as a, oh, a love Dev. person Don't as well. Get me he's, wrong. he's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um but let's move on to Best Motion Picture Drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year the category nominees were The Father, mm-hmm. Mank, Nomad Land, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Yeah. Uh, so we see again a lot of overlap here with uh, screenplay and director. You know, the father being nominated in one, but not the other. But all the other nominees here getting getting major love in yeah. a lot of categories. Yeah, yeah. We we already touched on all these, but the father, the father. I thought was I liked the father. Um, it didn't end up like it would have been on my long list. You know what I mean? You make your top ten, and then you have top twenty five. It would have made my t- top twenty five long list. So would Promising Young Woman, by the way. And and this one, I thought. Well, listen, I love Olivia Coleman. I'm just. I was just gonna say. I mean, put her in anything, and I'm gonna watch it. So literally anything. I will watch anything. She said. <laughs> I love her so much. Yeah. <laughs> and Anthony Hopkins, you know, he's a screen legend, and they're both doing great work in this one. Um, but uh, you know, this is one. I'm definitely not complaining about having you know a majority of women nominated for best director. But this is one that I feel like the director of this film. You know, he did some some interesting things with kind of conveying the experience of dementia on screen. So I think he would have been a, a worthy nominee as well. 
Well, you know, we spoke about this, God, I can't even remember what the context was, but one that I was excited to possibly see get some more attention was Vast of the Night, which was mm-hmm. one of my favorites of last year. Yeah. Uh, and we spoke, I remember uh, you telling the story about kind of the industry secret uh, that he's keeping to himself. And I kind of was hoping that buzz was going to elevate him to some some awards recognition. We haven't mm-hmm. seen that come to play yet. So I, I have a feeling that we're not going to once we get to... Oscars is the last major one to list their nominations. But, uh, you know, there, there's a few others in here that I do wish we'd, we'd seen. Of course, we mentioned First Cow was uh, ranked mm-hmm. number one on the AV Club's list of films this year. We don't see that one. Uh, we don't see... Yeah, uh, that one's been kind of absent, which is interesting, because I thought that the the leads in that gave good performances, too. Yeah, I yeah. agreed. And then we don't see Minari represented here. We mm-hmm. don't see... Uh, well... Minari was nominated for Best Motion Picture Foreign Language, which is kind of controversial because it's an American production shot in America. It's just mostly in Korean. And so, you know, they're kind of like, it, it, it's in this nether zone. And I would lean on the side of like, putting a film like Minari into like a Best Picture category. It feels a little bit like they're sidelining it or marginalizing it by putting it in foreign language to me. Yeah, I mean, and it does get muddled and, you do, you know, it's like, do you end up with it nominated in two categories or mm-hmm. where does this go? Because obviously I know uh, the Academy, as well as a lot of the other entities like the Golden Globes, have really taken a deeper look at to what they consider a foreign language film versus mm-hmm. foreign film and, and what the distinction are. So, you know, that's a whole debate. But I would have loved to seen that here as it, mm-hmm. as it is getting a, a lot of attention at other award shows. Totally. So, yeah, I would have liked to seen it elevated to the, to the big leagues here. Uh, you know, some of the other films that we that we haven't gotten to talk about that because they weren't represented here. Um, 40-Year-Old Version, which is, is definitely yeah. not a Golden Globes uh, audience. Like, that was not made for the Golden Globes voters. <laughs> In any way, shape, or form, but I know we all love that. Like, there's there's a there's a lot that we would have loved to see represented here, but it's a relatively strong category. We yeah, also I think see so. we also see in the acting categories uh, for for drama. We see Viola Davis for Marini's Black mm-hmm. Bottom, Andrew Day for The United States versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, and then of course we have Frances McDormand and Carrie Mulligan nominated for Nomadland and Promising yeah, a Woman. They, they've both been uh, both those names have been showing up a lot, and I think deservedly so. Yeah, and then on the actor side, we have Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, which that's is another my one that of the which year. yeah, that's another one. That's the, our favorites are aligning, Katie. <laughs> um I thought there was a lot of really strong choices made oh, in that film yeah. too, so I was surprised not to see Sound of Metal not nominated in more categories than right. it than it was. Well, listen, if nothing else, you know, the Oscars has more categories for film. If nothing else, I really think they should acknowledge Sound of Metal for sound editing and sound design, because, you know, I talked to, I mentioned the father kind of giving you this immersive experience of uh, dementia. Sound of Metal gives you a really immersive experience of what it's like to lose your hearing. And I, and yes, I thought that was very terrifying. innovative. It, yeah, it, very it innovative. It gives you that anxiety. Cool. It gives you that anxiety of like, wait, oh, I, this is not how I should be hearing this film. Like, what's going on? <laughs> sure. Um, and then you're like, oh, I'm experiencing what he's experiencing. It's very empathetic. Yeah. Most definitely. To close out that category, we have Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, of course, nominated posthumously. Anthony Hopkins, who we mentioned already, is nominated. Gary Oldman for Mank uh, and Tahara Rahim for The Mauritanian. Uh, another so Globes here wild actually, card. <laughs> another Globes wild card. Um, but I was just going to say here, unlike the other categories that we've discussed, you know, there was a lot of overlap between screenplay and director, and there was a lot of overlap in the musical or comedy best motion picture category with the acting nominations there. But here, I mean, we've got, you know, we have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in both actor and actress, but that Mm -hmm. is not represented in film. Uh, We have the United States versus Billie Holiday, which doesn't get noticed there. Pieces of a Woman, uh, Sound of Metal, which we discussed, and the Mauritanian. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting that the films were nominated, but not the performances as much when it comes to the dramas. Right. Yeah. And and vice versa. Right. You know, like you have performances being honored for films that aren't really showing up. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, we didn't mention the supporting actor roles. Uh, Those are combined between Mm -hmm. comedy and drama. So you get uh, 
you get a whole mix of people there that were fantastic. Our uh, queen as well. Olivia Coleman shows Our up. Our queen Olivia Coleman is there. Um, you also have Sasha Baron Cohen, who is a mm-hmm. double nominee because of his work on the trial of the Chicago Seven. So, uh, so there are plenty of great actors there as well. Uh, you also get Bill Murray for On the Rocks, which mm-hmm. was definitely a very Globes nomination. You have uh, Jared Leto for The Little Things, mm-hmm. uh, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, who I thought was great. Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you mentioned Olivia Coleman. We have Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, which I know you and I have discussed. Uh, <laughs> that was a little bit of a surprise, but okay. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> We'll, we won't even get into it right now. It's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a whole thing. Um, uh, Jodie Foster for The Mauritanian, Amanda Seyfried for Mank, and Helena Zengel for News of the World, who, like, she, you know, for especially being the age that she is, like, that was just an incredible performance and mm-hmm. very few, very few words of English spoken by her in that film. And yet she conveys just so much right. uh, non-verbally. I- or, or uh, I don't want to spoil anything uh, about the film, so I won't say anything else, but she just does so much yeah. uh, work with so little there. Yeah, if, if uh, you're seeing nods to this film, I think she's, she's uh, the, I, I'm happy to see that she's the one getting the nod for that film. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I actually, the film itself is totally serviceable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was very paint by numbers aside from her performance. Totally. Um, like, totally. So yes, agreed. Uh, Kitty, you and I have just aligned so much in discussion here today. We'll have to we'll have to plan to disagree more the next time we have you on. But I really appreciate you coming on in the days leading up to the Globes, uh, totally. giving your thoughts. We will have to decompress afterwards and and talk about the ceremony and yeah. who won, who lost. I can't wait for you all to check out our coverage. Obviously, on the night of on AV Club, but certainly in the days after and on Push the Envelope after. But uh, for now, Katie, I really appreciate you uh, being here. Well, I'm always happy to be here. So thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. Now, uh, if you are listening to this, of course, do not go anywhere because we are not done just yet. Next up, we'll hear from our very own Mara Eakin, who got the chance to chat with Saturday Night Live alum Vanessa Bayer. The actress can currently be seen in the -the over-the-top comedy Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which stars Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo in the title roles and features Jamie Dornan, Damon Wayans Jr., and a whole bunch of surprise cameos that we won't ruin here. Uh, Reading from the Wikipedia synopsis, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar is the story of, quote, Best friends Barb and Star, who leave their small Midwestern town for the first time to go on vacation in Vista Del Mar, Florida, where they can soon find themselves tangled up in an adventure, love, and a villain's plot to kill everyone in town. Bayer plays a scene stealer, uh, this tyrannical leader of a a social club of sorts who kicks Barb and Star out uh, of of the club at the beginning of the comedy. Um, The the film actually scored a very solid B from our very own Jesse Hassinger, uh, so check out that review on avclub.com. Here, Mara discusses the film with Bayer before having her answer our new batch of 2021-11 questions. Uh, So let's take a listen to that conversation. It's been a while. No, right? Um, um, first of all, I wanted to say that I really loved Barb and Star. And like, I've seen some people on Twitter, like some critics being like, this is going to be a new cult movie. Like, this is going to be everyone's, like, we can say one line and people love that one line. You know what I mean? So I'm excited for people to start seeing it. Oh my God. I'm so excited for people to see it. I, It is such a joyful movie, aside from it being like hilarious and and Kristen and Annie are so good and like everybody's so good in it and it's so funny and well-written it's like it's just so full of joy in a way that like I just think people really need right now and it's like it just makes you laugh and it's just so fun and like that's what I I think we're all craving right now so I just am so excited for it to finally be coming out I'm like always here for like a Chico's joke or like a Jennifer convertible. It's all, it's, it's all, I mean, my friend Kitty, like we used to dress up in her mom's, like as teenagers, like not as little kids, we used to dress up in her mom's like skirt suits and like (laughs) culottes and stuff and like take pictures and like invite boys over to see us in our weird outfits, which they were like, you guys are weird. (laughs) You know, like we just, that's, that's, I love that world. I love like a pearlized buttons (laughs) <laughs> let's let's go all in. So this the concept for this interview is that we have these like same 11 questions we ask people all year long. It's called 11 questions. And our readers came up with them. Great. Here's the first one. 
Uh, okay. What is number one is what is the best trip or outing you remember as a kid and what made it great? I think for, I think it was like my grandparents anniversary. Like I want to say it was their like 40th anniversary or something, although I could be wrong. Okay. And I think I was about four years old or five years old. And we all went to this ranch. I think it was in California. I have about as much knowledge about it now as I did then. So that's why I like, I, I like have kid memories of it. So I don't exactly know <laughs> what state we were even in, but we went on this ranch and it was so, I just remember it being so fun. And I think something that has informed that too, is we have so many great pictures from it. Like there's a picture of my mom and I in a canoe and it looks like it's so cute. And then I think my aunt Hillary took this. I think she was the one who took it. There's this picture of my brother and I. So like, let's say I'm like three or four and he's like five or six. And we're just like walking, just like on this farm, like holding hands. Like it's so from, she took it from the, this photo from the back and it, she just like caught this moment, this like sweet moment with my brother where, which is like, I think, especially at that age, like those weren't like necessarily happening all the time, the sweet moment. Um, so it just like, it was such a fun time to like be with family. And we all like, I remember the adults went on like a harder horseback riding thing. And I went on a, like, I remember being like, on the easy horseback riding thing. I also think my grandma bought us cowboy boots. Like I think she bought me and my brother cowboy boots for it. Anyways, I'm giving you a lot of details (laughs) that are unnecessary, but it just like the idea of going to a ranch with your family. It just, I still like, remember, like I have light memories of being there and just being like, this is great. We're at a ranch. Like, it's so cool. (laughs) I think if I was a few years older, I'd have more memories, but like, pretty, pretty good for, for it having been so long ago. You're going to have to like call Jonah and be like, is, am I remembering this? Like, was that? I know, I know, I know. Jonah maybe will remember it a little better than me, but it was just cool that we got to go to a ranch. Like how cool was my family that they got that together? <laughs> um, question two is what's something that's considered a basic part of your current career that you struggled to learn? Um, I guess saying no to things. I think when I first started working and and booking jobs and stuff, like I felt like I needed to say yes to everything. And I think now um, I understand that there's a lot of value in saying no to things that don't excite you or don't feel like they're productive just because if you're not into doing them, then you're probably not going to do a great job anyway, then probably someone who, who is, who is more suited for that thing should be doing it. So, but it's like, I'm a people pleaser as many people are. And so I always want to like do the thing that makes the other person feel good. But I think, I guess I'd love to psychoanalyze this very simple answer, (laughs) make it very boring for you. But the point is just, I I think I've I've learned that saying no is often the right thing to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I'm sure you get asked to do, will you come do my sh- my improv show or be on my blankety blank, you know, whatever it's like. Right, 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 right. And sometimes you're like, I'll, I'll be a sack of garbage at that thing. You should get someone else. <laughs> Question three is, did you pick up any new skills, hobbies, or got into something that you hadn't during quarantine? I've been cooking a lot more, which like, what a unique answer. Um But also, yeah, new skills. I started knitting again, and I used to basically only know how to knit scarves and blankets, and now I've learned how to knit beanies. So that's kind of a new thing. Um, What are you cooking? I'm cooking, um, okay, there's this white bean and celery ragu that it's it's a New York Times recipe. And I, look. Do I subscribe to the New York Times? Yes. Do I subscribe to their cooking thing? You know, questionable. But the thing is, sometimes you can still get the recipes, even if you don't. Anyways, the point is, I don't know why I felt like I needed to come clean clean with that. But the point is, it's like cannellini beans and like zucchini and scallions. I'm giving you all the ingredients. And um, 
celery and it's so good. I guess it's a Chez Panisse recipe, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't even know about Chez Panisse. And now a lot of my friends have been like, we have to go to Chez Panisse once the quarantine's over. And I'm like, of course we have to go to Chez Panisse. And I feel so fancy just like saying Chez Panisse, but um, also maybe because I've mentioned it so much already, like they'll you know, like bring us a free dessert or something when I eventually go. But the point is um, I've been making that ragu like at least once a week. Most week. really solid. Like I get their emails that are like weeknight meals or whatever. And it comes out like every Friday or something. And they're very the New York times ones. Yeah. Yeah. They have great stuff. Yeah. Should I pay a little extra for my subscription and get, you know, but it's also <laughs> like we're in quarantine. I don't think I pay for that. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. I'm just trying not to make the same shit over and over. Yeah, exactly. Not, by, not like buy, like, I don't want to have to go and buy like vanilla beans or whatever. I don't know, whatever. Right, it is. right, right. Totally. Um, speaking of, number four, uh, what restaurant do you not live near, but make a point to hit every time you're in the right town? Okay, there's, can I give you two? Yeah. Two came to my mind immediately. When I'm in Cleveland, I always go to Tommy's. It's my favorite restaurant. Of course. Yeah. Milkshakes. Oh, so great. Yeah. I love Tommy's. It's amazing. When I'm in Chicago, I always go to Penny's noodles. They have this vegetable noodle bowl. And the thing that's so amazing about it is so good, but it barely has any sauce on it. It's like, I don't know how they do it. I've tried every other I've lived in, which I guess have only really been Cleveland, New York and here in LA, but Every, every time I move somewhere, I'm always like, do they have something that like, you know, rivals this Penny's noodle bowl? And they don't. But I love Penny's noodles so much in Chicago. It, like nothing even comes close to it. I I just haven't found anything. And I'm like, this will be my quest in LA as well. And so far I've been unsuccessful. Um, well, that's a blog. Tommy sounds really good now though. Question five is what futuristic technology that doesn't exist now would you like to have, like, I might say, I would love to have, you know, self-driving cars that does exist now, but not, not like it should. Okay. You're, you're really reading my mind because I do have a self-drive. I do have, God, I'm going to come off as really fancy and rich on here, but I do have a Tesla. I have, I have the model three, which is like, you know, the, it's like, you know, you're able to like just barely get a Tesla, but you got one. By the way, it's such a nice car. I don't mean that. I'm I'm more taking a dig at myself, not at Tesla Model 3 owners. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's the greatest. I think it's the greatest car of all time. But anyways, my point is, and I know that like they really need me to <laughs> promote it. Um, but my point is just that it drives me a lot. A lot of times when I'm in the freeway, I have it drive me and I'm like, I cannot wait until everyone has self-driving cars. And they can just talk to each other, you know, not like, hey, how are you? But like, they can just communicate with each other. And then we can just all be so safe and just let our cars figure it out instead of like us, like being emotional and and like, you know, making a turn because we feel like pissed or whatever, <laughs> which <laughs> don't make sense. you know what I mean? Like once that once that can happen, that will be so cool, I think. A lot of people think that will be scary. I think it'll be cool. I think because I drove when I was growing up in Cleveland in high school and stuff. And then I didn't really live in a city where I drove again until I moved to LA a couple of years ago. So I think because I hadn't been driving very much, I was very easily like transitioning into like the self-driving stuff. Cause I wasn't like, Oh, I'm used to driving this way. And now I'm right. Whereas I can, I could see how someone who drives regularly and then is switching over to the self-driving stuff could be like, this is so weird, but I've heard, I mean, I, I think you just get used to it very quickly and look, Mara, we can sidebar about this, but I very highly recommend that car. Okay. Good to know. I, I am intrigued. Um, okay. <laughs> Question six. What famous person that you've met has lived up to or exceeded your impression of them? Okay, let me think about this. There's so, I, the reason I'm thinking about it is because there's so many. I'm just trying to think. I mean, so many of the SNL hosts, so much of the SNL cast. I mean, you know, obviously Kristen Wiig, she's like a delight and she's so kind and was so welcoming to me when I started on the show. She's just like such, she's such an inspiring person to me because she's so funny and she's so warm and she's just like a master of her craft, which I feel like is such an actory thing to say. And I'm immediately regretting it, but I do mean it. Um, Yeah. Like so many of the hosts, I'm sorry to like 
whatever. But Paul McCartney was so nice. And my parents came to the show that, that he was a musical guest and like, he was so nice to my parents and I got to see my mom revert to a teenager, which is a whole other story. But like, it was so, he was, he's like such a lovely person, which you're like, wouldn't he be like so jaded and stuff? Like, wouldn't he be like, I don't know, but he was just like friendly and sweet and just a delight. There's just been so, so many of the hosts have been so amazing. Paul McCartney is one of those guys that's like, oh no, he's had billions of people talk to him. He's had literally every experience. Like he has every right to just be like, I just want to go from my car to my door and shut my door. You know what I mean? And yeah. yeah. Um, number seven, what is the worst? This is actually an old question that's coming back to the list of here. Um, what is the worst job you've ever had? Um, this is hard for me because I feel like for better or for worse, I've like learned something from every job I've had. Wow. She's an inspiration. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. But, um, I would say that I was the summer after I graduated from college, before I moved to Chicago, I was a hostess at this chain restaurant, which um, I'm sure you've been there. I don't, I don't want to shame them and call them out by name because it was fun, but it was like, it was just so it was, it was, um, it was hard. I mean, the, I, I think the, the servers have it much harder, you know, than the hostesses do, but like, or the hosts do. But I just remember it was like a lot of time on my feet and sort of like, you know, they told us to talk to the people who are coming to eat, like talk to them the whole way to their table. And, and a lot of the people who are coming to eat there, this was actually very fun. were like my friend's parents. So I would talk to, so then I got in trouble for talking to them too much because I was like so excited to see them because, you know, I was just out of college. So I hadn't talked to any of them since high school and I love talking to parents. So I guess in some ways that job was really fun, but I just remember the bread that we would put on every table. I just remember going into the bathroom and just like shut with like bread hud like hid under my shirt and just like eating so much bread in the stall because I was so hungry because it was just like, you know, it was just, you just had to like stand there and wait for people or just like lead all these. I don't know. It's just, it was just, it was a challenging job because I was eating bread in the bathroom all the time, I guess. I have had a service job as well. And it's either like, you're either super busy or you're just like standing there waiting. Yes. I think that's the other part. I think that's what I was sort of thinking too. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, super busy or super slow and either way, you know, it's yeah, there's never that like in between. And also when people are hungry, you know, they're not great to like the, the rest halfway through when I was working there, they started taking reservations, but they didn't take them at first. So it would be like, we would sort of have to like estimate how long people would have to wait. And it would sort of be like, you know, people would get very, very mad at me. Yeah. Cause it's always your fault. Like you're yes. the gatekeeper. So it's like somehow your fault that, you know, it's going to take 45 minutes or someone's taking too long because they're just sitting there. Yes. I remember the thing of like, I was so conscious of having to talk to people all the way till they were seated from like the hostess stand to their seat that I remember like going to restaurants after that, I'd be so conscious of like whether the hosts would like talk to me or not while I was getting seated. Yeah. I'm like, are they doing Bev naps? Like all this dumb shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. They have to go roll silverware at the end of this. That stings. <laughs> I was so slow at rolling silverware too. Very, very slow. <laughs> Um, question eight, uh, is what fictional family would you like to belong to? I mean, given the option, I would probably keep my own family, but I, but that's not like a very fun answer. Um, if I was like a cousin, like, but a, a very close cousin of the family from Troop Beverly Hills, because Shelly Long could be my mom or like mom figure. Jenny Lewis would be my sister and Craig T. Nelson would be my dad figure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> they are, uh, yeah, that's one of so those. I guess, I guess I would be married. I guess I would be marrying or joining into that family, uh, the the real version of <laughs> that family, because I like all those people so much. But I also like their characters a lot. You could be like the the woman that like works there too. You could just be like, yeah, I could like I could like sort of like pick up after them and sort of make sure everybody, you know, with all, I could make them white bean and celery ragu all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, you could be like the, I can't, I, I want to say your name is Mary, but I don't know if that's right. 
the lady that like is like spying. Oh, Mary Gross. What's her name in the movie though? Yeah, exactly. I would, I would want to be her once she's like in their world. <laughs> exactly. Question nine is what is the first piece of art or earliest piece of media that inspired you to go into your field? I you think it was consciously, a yeah, I think consciously or unconsciously it was, well, I used to watch SNL a lot when I was little. And so I think that had something to, definitely had something to do with it. Also, I was, what I was going to say is consciously or unconsciously, my brother and I, and even my parents, we used to watch Tommy Boy so much and we just like loved it so much and quoted it. And all my friends watched, we all quoted it. And like, we couldn't watch it enough times. Like it never got old. And I just loved Tommy Boy so much. And I just think like, you know, sort of like the way that I feel when I'm watching Tommy Boy, like how can we, you know, let's keep this going. That's an excellent choice. Thank you. Um, question 10, and this one will be hard, but um, who is the funniest person you know personally? I think it might be my friend, Kitty. Her name is Mudo now. It used to be long from growing up. She was always just, she's one of the funniest people I know. She's just so funny. My dad's also very funny. Um, I think my dad and Kitty. Those are good choices. Last question. If a deli named a sandwich after you, what would be on it? Oh, this is pretty easy, actually, because I was a pescatarian for like 20 years, starting at overnight camp. And then um, and then I started eating meat again, like in my early 30s, like very early 30s, like around 30. And um, not that I'm that much older than that, Mara. But anyways, um, as soon as I started eating meat again, I was like, what the hell was I doing not eating turkey sandwiches? I think turkey sandwiches, especially with like really thin turkey, like deli meat turkey, like what is better? So it would be a turkey sandwich. And if, I, if I'm getting everything that I really want, I think it would have like a cheese, a lettuce element. And I, I'm what I'm trying to think of what like there, I think there's some mustard on there mm-hmm. and maybe some pickles and you know, I, I know that like to some, they're like, oh, like, wow, like who cares? But to me, a turkey sandwich, honestly, just as long as there's turkey in there. And look, is it a signature? Like, is it the most specific sandwich you've ever heard of? Probably not. But just because it's specific doesn't mean it, it, it's a great sandwich and that. And you can quote me on that. <laughs> I really appreciate that. That's going to do it for us on Push the Envelope. If you want to check out Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar. It's currently available to purchase wherever you get your on-demand content. And if you want more Push the Envelope, we'll be back next Thursday to unpack everything that happened on this Sunday's Golden Globes. Please remember to like and comment and subscribe to our podcast feed. Uh, But until next week, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.